morning's reading is from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 13, beginning at verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are all summed up in this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbour. Therefore love is the fulfilment of the law. And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. I hate being in debt. not just financially, but there's that sense of burden when uh, you owe someone something and maybe it's because they've been very gracious to you and they've given you something or maybe it's a debt that you feel like you've done something wrong and you have to pay someone back as a result and it kind of sits deep in your heart. We feel like we owe someone something. But what we see, particularly in this chapter and particularly these verses, is a positive debt, if I can use such a term. I know financially that probably doesn't work, but theologically it does. We have a positive debt. Uh, Paul, in, in, the, in this section of Romans, from Romans 12 to Romans 16, uh, is filling out the implications of the great gospel which he has expounded in the previous chapters. Uh, And in verse 13 last week, chapter 13, sorry, last week, we looked at what does it mean to submit to authorities as an expression of love for other people? And the second half of chapter 13 reminds us of our love for our neighbours. And uh, the whole idea of who your neighbour is, is of course a question Jesus was asked and most famously answered with an extremely famous parable. Anyone remember what that parable was? Parable of? This is the non-rhetorical part. Everyone knows the rhetorical question is, right? This is the non-rhetorical part. Good Samaritan, as opposed to the bad Samaritan, right? Uh, The good Samaritan. Now, there's not enough time, uh, because... uh, we can't go on and on, uh, to unpack what is and who is your neighbour. But I encourage you, if you're struggling with that question, to go to Jesus' extremely powerful parable and story of the Good Samaritan. 
Paul reminds us, particularly in verse 8 onward, this is a key point in verse 8 which will then expand, that each and every one of us has a beautiful debt, a positive debt, an amazing debt. He says there in verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. You and I have a debt to love one another. Now, that's a a very kind of strange way to think about love, isn't it? If you were writing a Valentine's Day card to your your beloved, financial terms, unless you're an economist, are probably not going to be the phrases that you use. Because the reality is most debts seem to involve money and and most debts can be paid off, eventually at least. Uh, Taxes and mortgages, kind of, we make payments and eventually the capital and interest reduce and reduce until we are debt free and we celebrate. But what what we are being told here is the debt of love can never be paid off. You owe just as much after you made a payment as before. The same amount of debt remains. You can't say, look, I've paid off this month's love debt and therefore I can kind of not worry about it to next month. No need to love today. I loved yesterday and did more than I needed to. No. The debt of love never ends. Now, I hope the fact that we are called to love each other is not surprising or new. If this is the first time you've heard that as Christians we're called to love each other, if, if that's all you take away today, that's great. But my guess is that's probably not a surprise. But I think it's important to understand, well, why then does Paul use this language of debt? Well, in one level, he's just continuing the theme of the previous part of chapter 13, where he's been speaking about paying what you owe with regards to taxes and to honour. So there's a kind of a thematic link to the previous section. But it still leaves the question, how can love be a debt? And how can love be a continuing debt? In other words, a debt we can never pay back. And I think the answer to this question is actually completely the opposite of what we expect when it comes to debts. The reason why love is a debt, ironically, is because God has already paid our debt in full. The reason why love is a debt, ironically, is because God has already paid our debt in full. The debt of love we have for one another, in other words, is not because we owe somebody else something because they've done something for us, The debt of love we owe to love each other is because Jesus has done everything for us and everything for them through his death and resurrection. Jesus has paid the debt of all of us. He's paid the price in full and taken away our sin and guilt and condemnation and that, ironically, is why we are debtors to one another in love. Now, you might think, That kind of makes sense, but there's a bit of a problem in the logic. Haven't we become debtors to Jesus rather than debtors to each other? After all, he's paid the price, right? As much as I love my friends, they have not died on the cross for my sins. Only Christ has done that extraordinary thing. 
And the answer is, well, maybe, but this is the beauty of the gospel which makes grace, grace and makes our love for each other truly limitless. Because, brothers and sisters, you actually can't pay Jesus back. You can't actually do it. Our debt was so infinite and Jesus has fulfilled all the requirements of it, any act of repayment will barely touch the sides. In fact, Scripture teaches us uh, that every single good deed of thankfulness are actually enabled by God's grace in the first place. And therefore, every time you do a good deed, you are actually putting yourselves further into debt. And secondly, Jesus dared not be paid back. Any attempt to pay back Jesus would mean that grace would not be grace. It would become a business transaction, a loan. Grace is free or it is not grace. Give me give you an example. Let's just say, theoretically, uh, one of my favourite parishioners buys me a 1959 bottle of Grange Hermitage. Do with that as you wish. <laughs> now, if I ask to pay for it, two problems. Firstly, I can't afford it. Uh, secondly, though, uh, it's no longer a gift, is it? Even if I say, thank you, you're very kind, how much do I owe you? It's not a gift. It's become a transaction. Grace is foundational to the way we understand our loving of each other. Because you can't love somebody unconditionally unless you are first loved unconditionally. And because God loves us unconditionally, we are then able to love other people unconditionally. And this means our love is without limits. It's it's a credit card, gold-plated, no limits. It's the magic pudding in, in the story of the magic pudding. No matter how much love you give, there is all more to give. Why? Because Christ's love for you is infinite. That's the source of your love for somebody else. It is love without strings. That's why it is great to be in debt when it comes to love. As we go on reading, notice that Paul gives a reason for this beauty of being able to love our neighbours. And he says in verses 8 to 10 that at the heart of it, what love does is it fulfils the law. Once again, a strange thing to say about love. Why is love great? Oh, it's a debt you can't pay off and it fulfils the law. Maybe not the two first things you went for. And notice Paul lists some of the Ten Commandments in verse 9. He lists four of them. He's hinting at all of them. In fact, he's just hinting at all of the commandments. And Paul also says, and whatever other command there may be, they're summed up in this one command, love your neighbour as yourself. That's how you summarise the law. Love your neighbour as yourself. And we know, going back to Jesus' words, it's love God and love neighbour. That's the way. In fact, if you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments are all about loving God and the last six are all about how we love our neighbours as ourselves. 
Now it's important to remember, what was the place of the law in the history of God's people? When was the law given? Well, when we go back to the Old Testament, what we see is the law wasn't given so that people could then win or gain God's approval. No, the law was given in response to God's grace. Not to cause God's favour, but because God had already looked upon his people with favour. God saves his people, he calls them, he says, you are my people. And then, and only then, he gives them the law. This is how you live as my people. Not, this is how you become my people. Very important difference. And so what Paul is saying is, look, if you want to fulfil the laws of God, if you want to respond to God's love for you, then love. Love. Your attitudes and actions satisfy the demands of the law, then you are loving as you ought. That is how love fulfils the law. The problem is, of course, our hearts are so sinful, we don't know how to love. It should be obvious that murder is wrong. Yet it's one of the commandments. Why? Because we're bad at loving. It should be obvious that it's not loving to lie to people, yet we are sinful that we need to be reminded. Do not lie. And this is is how love fulfils the law. It shows you its purpose and direction, how to love God and how to love our neighbours. And what this means is love is not some kind of a theoretical feeling, some emotion. It actually has practical outworkings. Every behaviour should be shaped and formed by love. In that beautiful picture painted for us in 1 Corinthians 13, you know the passage that, that's read out at almost every single wedding? You know, it's, actually not a, it's actually not meant just for weddings, it's meant for everybody. <laughs> but it seems to be kind of stuck in weddings. Love is patient. Now what I want to do is as I read this um, and the words it and love, I want you to think about your name in that position. Love is patient. Love is kind. Does not envy. Does not boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Keeps no record of wrongs. That one alone is extraordinary. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices in truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now some of those you might feel like you're leaning into a bit more but others might might great. And that's the Holy Spirit's prompting for you to work on how you love your neighbour. Not proud, not rude, not self-seeking, not easily angered. I wonder which one of those you need to sharpen upon. And if you want an even easier way to do this, if you don't want to go all the way to 1 Corinthians 13, uh, Paul gives us this wonderful little phrase, love your neighbour as yourself. This is the kind of rule of thumb in every, every situation, which is, by the way, quoting exactly what Jesus said. Notice how this command assumes that each of us already love ourselves. <laughs> it doesn't say, look, love yourself, 
I want you to sort of that out, love your neighbour. It's a recognition that we have a certain selfishness, a certain desire to please ourselves. You shall love your neighbour as you already love yourself, is, is what Jesus and Paul are saying here. Now, it's not a call to, to talk about self-esteem, to build up your own self-esteem so you can love other people. Now, what we're told is here, let your built-in desire for happiness be the measure of your desire of the happiness of others. Your built-in self-love and kind of self-promotion, let that be, be a guide and measure for your, your desire for other people to be loved and cared for. In other words, your degree of self-seeking should be your measure of self-giving. Or as a friend of mine puts it so wonderfully, be as generous as you are, extravagant. Be as generous as you are, extravagant. So what, what my friend does is when he wants to buy himself something nice, he doesn't say no, he says, I'm going to buy this electric guitar, I'm into electric guitars, and, but the money I spend on that, I'm going to spend an equal amount in some way that loves and cares other people. Be as generous as you are, extravagant. If you're generous in pursuing your own happiness, be, genuine in, uh, be generous in pursuing the happiness of others. If you're energetic in pursuing your own happiness, be energetic in pursuing the happiness of others. If you're creative in pursuing your own happiness, be creative in pursuing the happiness of others. And if you, you persevere and, and struggle to make sure you're happy, maybe you should persevere and struggle to seek the welfare of others. Can you see how powerful that is? In other words, we're not seeking the same things for our, for our neighbour as we want, but we're seeking them in the same passionate way. Look, I might love pressing flowers and that might not be your thing. I'm not saying that we have to all press flowers and give everyone... I'm saying is the passion and love you have for yourself and your desires and your experiences and your, the things that you want, let that be the hallmark of how you treat other people. That is how love fulfills the law. Love your neighbour as yourself. Because generally, generally, we're quite good at loving ourselves. A plus, John. I'm an expert. That's the first reason that Paul gives following on. Love fulfills the law. The second thing he noticed, how he speaks. Uh, is this idea of us living in between times, that the time is, is now a certain time. And, and the kind of picture Paul paints is that we, as followers of Jesus, live between the two comings of Christ, his first coming and his second coming. Sometimes this is called the overlapping ages or the in-between times or the, the now but not yet, but it means we live in, in a time where both aspects are at play. And what I mean by that is we live in this age which is deeply marked by sin and it is broken and it is dark and it is full of sadness and death. That's the pattern of this world, literally of the age of this world in Romans 12. And you turn your news on for two minutes or watch online for two minutes and you will see evidence of this if it's not already in your life. But we also live as Christians 
in the age to come. Christ's victory has already been won. The age of righteousness and joy and life and hope, they also mark our world, a foretaste of the world to come. And so we live between these two things, a world that is both dark and both light, both sad and both joyful. Uh, When I was at school, I was part of the Cadet Corps and one of the things we used to do was Anzac Day service, which meant starting very, very early in the morning. At 4.20 in the morning, we'd have to go and stand uh, in front of the, 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 um, the, the shrine of remembrance or the, the catafalque, depending where you were, and rest called rest on arms reversed. You had to stand still without moving for two hours, which as a 16-year-old boy is hard at the best of times. And at the beginning of the service, it was always pitch black. Yet by the end of the service, it was always light. And I remember each year thinking because I had a lot of time to sort of stand still and think. It is really hard to say, look, when does it stop being dark and start being light? When was that moment? And it was really hard to say, because it's so gradual that you didn't notice it. In other words, the dawning of a new day isn't like instantly the sun pops up, or instantly it goes down again. That would be somewhat terrifying, wouldn't it? You drop it, something gone black. Now, it's, it's often subtle and gradual, and I'm working in the office and I didn't realise it's gone dark. And Paul uses that image of a dawn and that gradual changing to describe the current time we're in. Look in verse 11, he says, And do this, that is, love one another, let no debt, no love, uh, no debt remain except that for love, understanding the present time, the hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber. This is the verse to try and get your kids ready for school. You should stick it above your bed. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. The present time, well, that's the darkness. It's an ungodly hour. We even use that phrase when we get up very, very early, don't we? It's biblical. I'm just quoting scripture. It's ungodly. Look at Romans 13. There it is. Uh, It's dark now, but we know dawn is coming. We know dawn is coming. And remember, we need to understand when is this picture, when is this this image painted for us? It's painted in the first century. There is no electricity at all. Well, there is, but it's it's static, it's not um, in the power lines. The concept, you know, you know what I'm trying to say. There's no internet, there's no TVs, lighting is by oil lamps, or, uh, in other words, when night comes, it gets really dark. Uh, we kind of get, the closest we get is during a blackout. Like that, and we kind of we get freaked out and it's kind of, oh my goodness, everything's so black. That is the normal life for most people until very recently. In other words, night time is not going out and partying time or sitting back watching Netflix time or having friends over for dinner time. In fact, there are only two things you can do in complete darkness in Jesus' time, in Paul's time. One is sleep and the second is sin. That's it. Why sin? Because it's under the deeds of darkness. Nobody can see what you're doing. That was it. Sleep or sin. And so Paul is saying, look, because the dawn is approaching fast, if you're asleep, wake up. And because dawn is approaching, if you're in sin, turn away from it. Turn away from it. 
And so we need to ensure, as followers of Jesus, that we are awake. Now, asleep is what people in the, lost in this world are doing. And when you're asleep, you have no idea of what's going around you. You have dreams that are very often, might be very vivid, but they're not a true recollection of what's occurring around you. Jesus says it's time to wake up. Be prepared for what is coming. Be careful. Everything in this world that does not awaken your faith to Jesus will waft you off to sleep, will distract you off to sleep. Until you take your eyes off Jesus, just, just for a moment. I'll just, I'll just rest my eyes for a little bit. And we need to turn from sin as we face the dawn of a new day in God's kingdom to repent from sins that we think are hidden. Because Paul says, look, those things done in darkness where no one can see, where we think are private, where we think are quiet, where we think no one will see and hear. Look at verse 12. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Why? Because those things are the opposite of love. The opposite of love. Those things belong to the old age of sin and death and we belong to the new age of life and love. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has died for you. Know that you are perfect in his sight and we belong to him and his coming kingdom. Therefore, let's make sure our behaviour matches our identity. Our behaviour is like the uniform we wear to show which team we belong to. Romans 6 puts it this way, No longer present your members to sin as instruments of wickedness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought to life, since you are not under law but grace. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here, and our lives will be exposed for what they are. Just as the risen sun allows no one to hide in darkness, so the coming of the risen Son of God allows no one to hide in the darkness of sin. See, in the darkness, we can hide our naked shame and guilt. But how do we hide our naked shame and guilt in broad daylight when, when we're exposed? The metaphor kind of, kind of pulls it out. We need something to wear to cover us. Well, to be more precise, we need someone to cover our sin and our shame, which is what we have in verse 14. Paul says, rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you do to get prepared. Only when we clothe ourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ can we face this new day. It's only when we trust Jesus to cover us. The one who was actually stripped naked so that we could be clothed. The one who bore our shame so we could be forgiven. The one on whom the spotlight of God's justice fell because of our sin. The one who went into the darkness so that we can live in the light. It's only when we clothe ourselves with Jesus' grace and love that we are attired for eternity. What verse 12 calls the armour of light. 
Be armour of light. See, brothers and sisters, the wonderful truth is that now that I'm finishing my sermon, you are now closer to salvation than when I started my sermon. (laughs) You might say, a lot closer. (laughs) In other words, Christ is returning. He is returning. And there's a wonderful word of hope in that to those of us who are only too aware of our own failings. We spend most of our life seeing Christ in the language of scripture uh, dimly in a mirror. But when our salvation is final, it doesn't mean not secured, it means come to its completeness, we will see him face to face. And we are told every day it is one second and moment and hour closer to that beautiful day. And this is our only hope in the midst of living in this time with its joys and its frustrations, with its victories and its losses, with its celebrations and with its pains. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. And it is Jesus and Jesus alone who gives us the power to love each other without limitation while we wait. Without limitation, why? Because that is exactly how he has loved you. There is not one thing you have done that will make Jesus love you less. And there is not one thing you can do to make Jesus love you more. Therefore, let no debt remain except the debt to love one another. Come on down as we pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for these astounding words which speak of the eternal debt of your love. Help us to be a community where no debt remains outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another because we drink from the deep well of your eternal love for us. May we be a a group of people who seek powerfully to love our neighbours as ourselves For you know we are so good at loving ourselves. May we be so good at loving our neighbours. And Father, knowing the time, may we be those who wake from our slumber, who wake to serve and love, who turn from sin to light as we await that day where we will see you face to face. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.